Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Normally by Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Harry Kane. So, with the, the wellspring of rumours currently going around about whether he's going to stay at Spurs, whether he's going to leave, what teams he could go to, what sort of transfer fee it would take to make Daniel Levy sell him, whether it's a situation that if Tottenham finish in the top four and potentially win the League Cup, whether he'd stay. There's so much... It's clearly bubbling under the surface at this point, but there seems to me to be a a continual collective underestimation of of Harry Kane. For example, there was a um, Guardian sports writer, uh, and he was basically suggesting, when discussing the England team as a whole, that not many of our current squad would be considered world-class, that wouldn't be on the list for the Ballon d'Or. And to me, that that is just functionally ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the amount of goals Harry Kane has scored, the amount of assists he's made, his you know success at international level, at major tournaments, you know, his success while playing in you know European competition... I just don't see how he couldn't be one of the top 10 players currently playing in the world. He's playing in the Premier League. He's playing at a high-end Premier League team. He plays in Europe every single year. You know, when he's been in the Champions League, he's scored. When he's been in major tournaments, he's scored. You know, name me 10 players that are currently having a better season than him. And there's also some discussion of whether he, you know, whether he's one of the best strikers in the world, whether someone like uh, Lewandowski, whether Haaland, whether, you know, Lionel Messi in his gentle decline phase is still a better player. And I think where this collective sort of cultural underestimation, I think it plays into the, the deep well of disappointment that the English public and the press have in the national team. You know, they're, they're always falling short, even when, you know, relatively successful. You know, you have the World Cup semis in Russia. You know, they're one nil up. You know, Kane has this sort of golden opportunity to put them, you know, 2 nil up, which I th- to my mind would have put them through. I don't imagine that Croatia would have had the legs in that instance to have attacked England, you know, having played, you know, extra time, at least a couple of times earlier in the tournament. And you then have the sort of Euro Nations campaign where they finish third. And there's always this sense of effort over thought. You know, the World Cup semi-final against Croatia it was a sort of slow motion inability to problem solve. And that kind of bleeds into the debate regarding the formation that, that you know, Gareth Southgate is going to choose. Does he go with, you know, 3-4-3 three, three, or 4-3-3? Three, three? Does he go with a double pivot? And, you know, whether his caution is... His tactical caution is necessary, whether that's the best use of the the resource that England have, which is mostly front-end. They have a lot of attacking midfielders at the moment, you know, a few decent defenders, but really, going forward, they should be a better team than they are you know, staying back. And I think it, again, goes back to sort of historically. Because our international teams have been relatively unsuccessful, it is, gives rise to the, the sense that and the notion that our players weren't world class. I mean, there's been a few articles sort of dotted around the internet and in papers where people were saying, well, how many world class players have England truly had? So let's say you start from 66. So you're talking about sort of 50 plus years worth of you know history. And I'd have to say that you know, Bobby Moore, Jim. Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Charlton, Gordon Banks, you know, 
Kevin Keegan, Glenn Hoddle. Yeah, you could potentially say John Barnes. You could talk about Gary Lineker, Gazza, Alan Shearer, Harry Kane, Wayne Rooney, Ashley Cole. You know, even Michael Owen. And you could even, if you want to, you know, extend it, talk about Lampard, Gerard, Beckham, you know, Ferdinand, Terry, even Paul Scholes. And you then have a sort of a selection of nearly players. You know, Matt Letizia, Frank Worthington, sort of Stan Bowles, a lost generation of sort of 60s and 70s mavericks who never quite fitted into the England team, but who have their qualities, who have their adherence. And there's, I suppose a sense that some of these players who I've listed haven't been utilised properly. You know, sort of bringing John Barnes on too late in the 86 World Cup quarterfinal against Argentina. You know, Matt Letice having seven England caps, a few of which were substitute appearances. Never really, two or three games in a row, never really 90 minutes. You know, lost generation. There's also an obsession with the Ballon d'Or. And to me, that is a glorified popularity contest. It's not necessarily, you know, how often does a goalkeeper get selected? How often does a defender get selected? It's, you know, you have to realistically be one of, at one of the top teams in Europe. You have to realistically have won something within that year. You know, for example, when Luka Modric won it, was just about the time when Cristiano Ronaldo was had, had a brilliant year, neither had Lionel Messi. And so it was almost like, well, we have to pick somebody. And it's like, well, Luka Modric has won a load of Champions League, has been playing for Real Madrid. And, oh, Croatia got to the World Cup final for the first time. So, yeah, we'll, we'll give it to him, much in the same way that sort of Fabio Cannavaro got it, almost because, well, ooh, we, we, uh, we can't really give it to Zidane. And, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll give it to that one, almost as a... Almost like an afterthought. Like, oh, well, we had to toss it to a defender at some point. So, yeah, Italian defenders. The Italians are fantastic at defence anyway. It's that kind of principle behind it, rather than what I would say is a... You know, a sober you know, reflection on really who is the, the who has had the best season or who is the best player at any given point in, in world football. And so with Southgate, I have a sense that he's really trying to ape what France did in in the last World Cup. The idea being is that as long as you're defensively sound and then you have just enough attacking quality that will get you over the line in those sort of tight games. It's not, he's not going to go into this tournament trying to play like Brazil 82. He's not trying to reinvent the wheel. He's not trying to push international football on. He's just trying to get England to win the, I suppose, the small details. In other words, if we don't make if we don't concede many goals, we have enough to then get just get one more than the opposition. And it, I suppose it feeds into the, the sense that England have an, an inability to find a place in the global hierarchy. So Brazil, you always have this sense that they there's this very strong desire to win. The people expect Brazil to win. And there's also sort of woven into that the sense that you're working towards 70 you're working to kind of create that synergy between winning and winning well in other words 82 they probably played fantastic football but they didn't win 94 they won but they didn't play great football if you can somehow mix 
weave those two into you know the, the fabric of gold the brazilian shirt that's brilliant that's what you want you know if you take you know big phil scolari at the 2002 world cup they started out very open and were defensively weak dropped you know janino brought in you know Clayberson, and then that basically gave them the stability to go on and win the tournament you know with it- italy you you have this sense of you know there's a an organisation, a, a structural rigidity, which allows for great squads to flourish, but it also allows some poor Italian teams. We've all seen uh, relatively workaday Italian teams get to a final or a semi-final, basically based on the idea that there's usually one or two quality players going forward. There's, you, there's always the good defence and solid players who are coachable. They may not be the most famous Italian football players, but they'll be able to do a job. And that really, I suppose, comes from the, the Italian coaching system continually developing skillful coaches and how Serie A has an ability that gives the opportunity, the pipeline, for it, intelligent Italian coaches to get into managing Roma, to manage Napoli, which then gives you the opportunity that opens up the door for one of the Milan teams, Juventus potentially, whereby England doesn't produce great coaches and or if we do they don't seem they don't they're unable to break through the glass ceiling into the top half of the premier league you've got you know sean dyche has done some fantastic things for burnley but realistically none of the big football teams in the premier league would, would touch him with a barge bowl there's still some question marks over sort of graham potter at brighton saying well he's done some fantastic things they play some good football he's got some of their players to improve but there's a question mark over whether an arsenal would pick him up much in the same way with eddie howe when he did well at bournemouth there was still a sense that p the english teams didn't trust their own homebred coaches to get them to the next level in other words, it's a sense of the homegrown coaches look and sound a bit like Tim Sherwood and whereby you're a foreign coach, let's say you take Mauricio Pochettino, who didn't have a, a tremendous track record but was showed promise, was the one that was able to take you know Tottenham on. You know, you, you have classic example, you know, recent example would be you know AD Boothroyd being the under 21s manager. He's done in many ways a, an exceptional job in that. England always qualify for the under-21 tournament, which isn't a given, isn't always something that you can necessarily guarantee. And plenty of other high-end top nations often go you know, multiple tournament cycles without qualifying. Yet, whenever they get to the group stages, they flounce out, and it's usually quite embarrassing. In comparison with the talent they have available and the football they could play, it doesn't seem to work. And this is the second... You know, under twenty ones tournament in a row, where they've been knocked out of the group stages in quite embarrassing circumstances. And and his comment was actually this is an impossible job, which is just just fundamentally ridiculous. It really is under every single level. You have the talent. You've qualified. You've had given. You've been given multiple tournament cycles, and you have experience of tournaments. But you keep coming back to well. How did he get this job? And it's like, well, his last major job in English football was leaving Northampton bottom of the entire football league and getting sacked. You then, well, he did well as a younger manager at Watford, but that was very route one. And yes, it got them promoted out of the championship, 
but it didn't get them anywhere in the Premier League. And so, looking at this, you know, you've got sort of, at times, Southgate's very leading tactical manoeuvring. You know, sometimes it almost feels like you, he's learnt the wrong lessons from Alf Ramsey. You see, Alf Ramsey had the system and fit the players into that system. In other words, it wasn't necessarily that 22 was the best 22 players that were playing in the English Football League as of that moment, but it was the best 22 that he felt would get them to the upper ends of the tournament, would get them into you know, the championship games, whereby with Southgate, you get the sense that it's more safety first. I don't think he really has a definitive system or a definitive set of tactics. It's more sort of getting the structure in place and then sort of hoping it'll be all right on the night. I mean, if you look at, you know, you've had a situation where Alan Shearer has been a golden boot winner in a major tournament. You know, so has Harry Kane, so has Gary Lineker. You know, of the list of England players I mentioned earlier, you know, Jimmy Greaves had had a relative success in Italy. You know, Kevin Keegan had great success in Hamburg. Glenn Hoddle had success out in Monaco. Gary Lineker had success for Barcelona. Gaza had relative success when playing for Lazio in the mid-90s. So, England, English players are talented. They may not be quite as easier to appreciate as foreign players. Because in on the end, all you see with someone like a Lionel Messi, you see the, the YouTube videos, you see the highlights of him doing fantastic things for Barcelona. You don't necessarily see the, the more prosaic games, the games where really, and this is with sort of the more recent iteration of Messi, where he's not doing a huge amount of running, he's not doing a huge amount of tackling. It's very now. It's very much condensed in the same way Ronaldo's very condensed. They don't do a huge amount, but what they do is fantastic. And yet Kane is doing much more. You know, he's become a sort of total 360 football player. You know, I've seen him make at least five or six, you know, clearances off the line this season already for Spurs. You know, you think of all the times he's dropped deep, all the times he's made tackles on the edge of his own box. And I think in some ways some of the issues with Kane comes down to that he doesn't necessarily fit into what we imagine would be a great English player. He wasn't developed in a traditional youth powerhouse. So you're not talking a, a Liverpool, to a lesser extent an Everton, or you know, Man United, or Southampton, or, or a Chelsea. You know, Southampton have the recent record, so you can say, well, you're talking about Gareth Bale, you're talking about Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, you're talking about Theo Walcott. You know, just a player after player after player who's gone on to bigger and better things. There was that period of time when Southampton were basically, you know, Liverpool's bread box. You know, you, with Man United, you talk about the class of 92. With Liverpool, you've got the, the Spice Boys of the 90s. You know, you had, you know, Gerrard, Carragher. You know, Everton had Wayne Rooney. And nor did... Harry Kane really come from an era that was well known for talent. So you know you have the North East, you have Newcastle, you know the Wolves End Boys Club, the list of fantastic players that have come from there. You know you in the East End you have Semrab, the the youth team, or the Greater Croydon area, Merseyside, and so at no point was 
Harry Kane come from any of that. Now he he's come from Spurs who have a regarded youth system. You know, generally the players they get they may not be the most gifted players, but they've had a good footballing education and they're fairly solid. You know, generally in, in recent years you, you would be talking more of centre halves. They developed Ledley King. They've developed Sol Campbell, and probably the greatest most naturally gifted player that's come out of the Spurs youth system would be, you know, Glenn Hoddle. Even in the sort of, again, recent times, you know, they'd had some success with strikers, but, you know, Crouch, but at the time, you know, when he was sold for £60,000 to QPR, you know, there was a period of time when, you know, due to his height and, you know, his very sort of slim build, there was a question mark whether he was going to make it in professional football. He he, he needed to go through a couple of years playing in double-A ball, or, you know, a year playing in triple-A, and you know, even two or three years in the big leagues. It was only really his late 20s that you finally started to see sort of the gifts that, you know, Peter Crouch had, which then, you know, Southampton, which then led to the World Cup and Liverpool, and, you know, the rest of his career, you know, he had a fantastic England career. And so because he didn't come from that, so because there wasn't this expectation on him, sometimes it's like, you know, when we compare Lewandowski to Kane, you get the feeling that Harry Kane is really held to a higher standard. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of similarities to them. They're both, you know, volume goal scorers, and both of them have played for, you know, at the sort of outsets of their careers. And and neither of them were highly expected. You know, Robert Lewandowski was not considered, you know, Poland's, you know, next generation. You know, there was a possibility a few times that he, you know, when he was playing in the, the you know, Polish top division, that he could have gone through a Blackburn. You know, it. it, it the fact that he managed to get you know, work his way to Dortmund and now to you know his record breaking spell at Bayern Munich, there was lots of times when it wasn't inevitable that that was going to happen, which is similar to Kane. But you know, Lewandowski when he was at Dortmund, they fell short in the UEFA Champions League final. You know, similar to Kane falling short, you know, in the champion his own Champions League final against Liverpool. But the the, the point is is that. There's the narrative function of moving to Bayern, which means he suddenly won, you know, Bundesliga after Bundesliga after Bundesliga, the German Cup, the German Super Cup, and now, you know, the Champions League, he's won, you know, a, you know, a treble. But has he actually got that much better, or is he just due to the fact that he's surrounded by an all-star cast? You know, he's playing a domestic, dominant outfit. And yet, at the same time, you know, is he as complete a player as Kane? Well, probably not, but nor does he have to be. And the point is, is that when, you know, I think Lewandowski will score more goals in an average season than Harry Kane because he's playing for a better team and also in a slightly weaker league. You know, there's lots of games where Bayern are 5-0 up and there are lots of times when he will be playing dispirited outfits with nothing to play for because they've already been beaten in the first half out. You know, he is the central striker. There's a lot of attacking quality surrounding him. But not necessarily a second striker that would you know, take away chances from him. But the point is the British sporting press ignore you know, Poland's recent abysmal record at major tournaments. In other words, they, you know, they qualify relatively competently. Even in a couple of places, they've you know, been top of their you know, qualification group. And yet, when they've come to the tournament, they've been out, you know, a 
dark horse, and that's you know due to the fact that you know they are his, you know they've got some historical World Cup pedigree in the sort of seventies and eighties. They did have t- you know teams that got to the latter stages. You know if you were con- compare them to I suppose a college American team, they're they're kind of like a mid major team, and yet. Lewandowski's lack of performance in those games and the fact that he's not really made a ma- major impression on a tournament seems to be dropped when Kane has actually performed at these tournaments. Which I think in some ways we almost need to take a step back to take a step forward. So why does Kane buck the narrative trend of modern football with his backstory that makes us in some ways doubt him, let's say, when compared to a Lewandowski in a way that seems at times almost sort of unfair, as if we're constantly sort of giving him backhanded compliments. It's primarily because you've had a situation where Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo have dominated the landscape of European and, I suppose, just football in general for so long. And it's only now that they're sort of finally fading. They're both now pretty much, we can safely say, in the sort of decline phase, the gentle decline phase of their careers. And it's just the fact that if you look at sort of major managers and major teams, at some point, Messi and Ronaldo have had an impact on them. So with Messi, you're looking to the importance of Guardiola's aura and what and how you know could Guardiola be the manager he is today without Lionel Messi being there. There's always that fact that it is constantly referred that you know Guardiola hasn't ever got to a Champions League final without. Lionel Messi hasn't won it without Lionel Messi. You have the the importance of Cristiano Ronaldo to you know Mourinho at you know nearly winning La Decima at Real Madrid, you know twice getting through to the semi final, twice losing on penalty shootouts. You know the importance of Ronaldo to Alex Ferguson's kind of you know last great Manchester United dynasty. You know you, the importance of Cristiano Ronaldo to. Real Madrid and how that is set against the you know the of the huge success the dynasty that Lionel Messi had with Barcelona during the same time period and how that affected Spanish football. You know you look at how PSG, how their trajectory is in some ways dominated by Lionel Messi. The idea of either we will try and sign Lionel Messi or if we can't get Lionel Messi we'll get Neymar because Neymar wants to leave Barcelona because he's sick of being in the shadow of Lionel Messi and he wants to win a Ballon d'Or off of his own back. I mean how many clubs right now are working towards signing Messi now that he's available on a free transfer? You know Man City for years have got some of the you know Ferran Soriano, uh, Tizishu Bergestein, you have you know getting Pep Guardiola getting the sort of team they have around you know, Messi, you know, with Neymar saying and Messi saying they want to play together, and we all thought that meant that Neymar would go to Barcelona, but there's a possibility that he goes to you know, PSG on a free transfer. You know, the, the point is, is that if you look on their backstory, they were both team prodigies that instantly made, you know, an impact. You know, the, you know, the idea that the 
Barcelona manager wanted to keep Ronaldinho away from Lionel Messi because he didn't want you know Messi to be influenced by some of you know, Ronaldinho's less professional you know extracurricular activities and lifestyle. So you know the the idea that and then selling Ronaldinho because they didn't need him anymore because how much of a focal point he'd been in you know winning the Champions League back in. In 2006. And it really comes down to the... Of just how quickly they made an impact. You know, the, the, the famous story of Ronaldo absolutely destroying John O'Shea in a pre-season friendly for you know, Sporting Lisbon against Manchester United that prompts Ferguson to sign in for a, a world record fee for a teenager. You know, the fact that... You know, Messi makes an, an immediate impact upon you know breaking into the first team, and it's also the this the vital sense that they had to move both move rapidly to the upper echelons of European football. You know there was no failure, there was no setbacks. It was very dizzying. You know, you know with Messi, it was. The fact that Barcelona were able to afford the, the growth medicine in the way that the Argentine clubs weren't. So basically, cut a long story short, little Messi was undersized as a child and, and needed some medicine to help basically stop him from having stunted growth. And that was quite expensive, something like um, a few thousand pounds. And this was when I think he was either, I want to say nine, ten, that kind of age. I could well be wrong on that, but... The point was is that a lot of the you know Argentine local clubs were well aware of his talent, but weren't really in a position to sort of spend that kind of money on someone who is who was a prodigy, but wasn't a guaranteed you know sure fire thing in a way that Barca were able to put that money and get him across into Catalonia because well that that small change to them and actually the upside was so much more whereby you know had one of the argentine clubs you know stepped up for messi yeah they may have developed him but you know how much would that transfer fee have gone once he when it became you know, ab- abundantly clear that he was a you know a future superstar he might have been sold for 5 million 10 million whereby you know so there's less of an upside in it And also, it's the importance that both have at a sort of in international football and at a national level. You know, Ronaldo was the, really the poster child for the the renaissance of Portuguese football. You know, you, you had the failure of the two thousand two World Cup campaign, where they were sort of generally speaking, sort of within the top ten of you know potential favourites. And, yeah, maybe dark horses. You know, you saw the talent they had. Figo, you know, they'd had success at you know Euro two thousand, which had been their you know really their coming out party. And what Ronaldo stood for was that it meant that this wasn't just going to be a one off. It wasn't going to be a situation. You know, so Portugal had sort of had a long period of time in the sort of international wilderness. They qualified for you know Euro ninety six and did okay. But then didn't qualify for World Cup 98. What Ronaldo stood for was that this was actually going to be a continuing act. You know, you'd had Porto winning the Champions League 
yeah, and then you UEFA Cup and Champions League under Jose. Jose was now going to you know Chelsea. You know you now had Ronaldo. So this was going to be a continuing act. Portuguese football was going to have the dividends of of this kind of success for an extended period of time. You know you've even had you know other Portuguese managers having success. You know AVB at you know Porto and at various other sort of dotted around Europe. You know, you've had João Felice being signed for a huge amount of money by, you know, Atletico Madrid. You've had all this, you know, lots of other talent, you know, Bernardo Silva. But the North Star has always been, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo as the the captain, the leader. You know, it's it, there's always this sort of outsized importance that was given to injured Ronaldo, sort of coaching the team along on the sidelines with an ice pack during the Euro twenty sixteen final when, you know. Portugal finally broke through and won a major tournament. But then you also had the Euro Nations final, with Ronaldo being the full hero. It wasn't just on the sidelines. And there's also the sort of cultural importance of Ronaldo. You know, in, in the sense of when he went to Real Madrid. In, in the, it was a seal of approval in his talent. that He wasn't just a product of the Premier League. He wasn't just successful in England where English football was considered... You know, in continental senses, you know, very fast, very physical, but lacking a little bit in, you know, thought and skill and and tactical, tactical and emotional IQ. You know, and it was a sense of sort of Iberian pride. And, you know, the the closest thing that you can really have to a to homecoming of sorts. You know, his mum wanted to see him in a white shirt playing for Real Madrid. You know, Portugal was a country that had a really tough financial downturn. So Ronaldo, in his kind of you know, outsized ego and glamour, you know, coupled with his sort of modest background of coming from you know the island of Madeira, which isn't the, particularly the wealthiest island. You know, it's very dependent on tourism, and it became a sort of an emblem of of hope. You know, sort of wider Iberian pride. The fact that he was going to be the one that, that would deliver La Decima and re-establish Real Madrid after sort of Barcelona's long-term sort of run of domer- dominance. And it always fascinates me that there's sort of similarities between the two in the way how they're sort of portrayed at a national level. They're both national heroes. And I suppose with Messi, it's slightly more complicated in that there was originally sort of issues with Messi and where how he was sort of had an almost an awkward relationship with the Argentine public. He, in some ways, they saw him as being more Catalan than Argentine because he'd left, you know, Argentina so young and was wasn't really able to go back very often. That he was almost sort of not quite a local in the way how he spoke and referred to things. Really, because he'd grown up and lived in Spain more than he had ever, and was probably more influenced by Barcelona and Spain than Argentina in respects. And it, I think it's one of the more sort of fascinating and sort of heartwarming elements is how that relationship has grown now. And there is... He is beloved in Argentina and he is far more understood than he was maybe 10, 15 years ago. I think it comes down a lot to this sort of the economic financial meltdown that Argentina has undergone sort of at several points since the you know, early two thousands. 
you know, that there was a, a really sort of almost a couple of generations worth of people that left Argentina that have moved to Europe and Spain and Italy to kind of escape that, you know, economic sort of depression era kind of circumstances and how that's impacted sort of Argentine football and in a way that the the, the national team has declined relatively speaking if you take their hammering by France in the group stages of, of the World Cup you could in the last World Cup you could see that there was a clear difference in talent and in depth from the Argentine team to the French team. You saw which team was more likely to be successful at the next World Cup. And that's really come into the domestic league, which is, you know, in times beset with you know, poor infrastructure. You know, it's not so much of a strong youth pipeline as there had been previously, a talent pipeline. It's weaker than it was before. You know, you have a domestic league beset by hooliganism. I think the classic example being the the River, the Boca Juniors, River Plate, um, Copa Libertadores final being postponed due to effectively rioting and damage to the bus that was taking one of the teams to the stadium. And so, as a result, with you know, with each final that Argentina have lost in the Copa America and, and the World Cup, and the, the obvious distress and the pressure that has been placed and endured by Messi that there's so much love for him from Argentina. He's the kind of the last remaining link to Argentine greatness. He's really the the only player that has been able to sort of step outside of the shadow of being deemed and being sort of coronated as the next Maradona. You know, he's had much more success at Barcelona and continentally and sort of domestically in terms of winning you know, Champions League, winning leagues, you know, racking up just hundreds and hundreds of goals. And in a way that he's almost become a symbol of the Argentine generation, that those people that have had to leave to, you know, to Argentina to have a better life. And the thing is, it's not just that Messi and Ronaldo dominated the footballing world in terms of their fame, in terms of what they've won, but it's how much that they have influenced and created the structure of the modern game, you know, with their record-breaking numbers. You know, stratification, you know, the idea that teams could dominate on a sort of unimaginable scale, that you really could have a team that could win four or five trophies in a single season, that they could literally sweep the board. The, the idea that you could have fans, you know, hundreds and thousands, even millions of fans who were following the player, not the team. That you'd have these sort of huge international fan bases. That you would have the Champions League and the Ballon d'Or would become outsized of, of outsized importance. And that you know, you'd have one or two players who would really dominate the national team. It is Cristiano Ronaldo and the Portuguese national team. It is Lionel Messi and the Argentine national team. Rather than, you know, even under Maradona, there was always a certain level of quality that was, you know, he wasn't needed in the 78 World Cup where Argentina won at home in that regards. You know, Messi and Ronaldo are prime examples of football globalisation. You know, Ronaldo was off the island and, is in, in, and in Lisbon by his teens. You know, Messi was on a different continent by puberty. So bringing this back to Harry Kane... What that means is, is that Harry Kane's development harks back to a different era. 
it's one of localism. And that's what bucks, why history bucks the trend of what we would expect of modern football. You know, he basically starts at, you know, Ridge Wave Rovers, does pretty well, his local team, gets picked up by Arsenal when he's sort of eight, nine, spends a year tr- training with them, and then gets released. They don't, they think he's a bit pudgy, they don't, you know, they think, they see there's some talent there, but nothing that, you know, they make the decision that he's probably not going to make it, or if he is not at the level that Arsenal were at. So he just goes straight back to Ridgeway Rovers, carries on playing, gets picked up by Watford for a little bit after a trial, does well against Spurs in a game, and then Spurs invite him and then you know, sign him up and he goes through the youth system. You know, It's just a case of each time it's like, well, I'll just go to my local club and it's well, Arsenal and then Spurs. Yeah, Watford are a little bit out, but not that far in terms of geography. And that, you know, with his skill set and with his sort of up until, you know, he finally breaks through, he's also primarily viewed through a lens of what he's not. Arsenal don't see the positives, they just see the lack of physicality, the lack of pace, the fact that his physique isn't, you know, superstar, which means you compare and contrast with Messi and Ronaldo, whose talent was, you know, entirely self evident from, you know, Earlier, you watch it like you know. You can find on YouTube videos of Lionel Messi playing as a kid, and it looks exactly what it is now. It's just gobsmacking in terms of how talented that kid was. And with you know localism, if even if you look at the the loan deals, his most important and beneficial loan deals are to League One, you know, Leighton Orient. And Championship Millwall. His footballing education really has a radius of somewhere in the vicinity of about 15 miles. It really is. You know, he grows up in sort of North East London. And for the most part, you know, all of it happens, you know, north of the River Thames. And it's all kind of a little, you know, relatively speaking, suburban. You know, Arsenal train in London Colney which is just between sort of Watford, Barnet and St Albans. You know, Spurs train at that time in Enfield. And you know, and also to a lesser extent they tr- sort of East London kind of area, upper East London, kind of the the easternmost bit of the central line in terms of the tube. And you know, or Leighton Orient one of the closest sort of league clubs to where he grew up in Millwall. It's all so close. And you know, he's 27, he's going to be 28 in a few months, but it already feels like his backstory is, you know, entirely anachronistic. You just don't imagine a, you know, sort of top 10 world superstar having a footballing backstory that is entirely playing for his local teams, on loan or, you know, in through the youth structure. And with that, there's almost a sense that he's almost missed a, a sort of a narrative step in you know way how sort of great English strikers have kind of come through historically. And the thing is, is that with Messi and Ronaldo, their talents sort of led to you know, really profound tactical innovations, you know, false nines, you know, wingers scoring at sort of industrial rates and the way how teams were built differently as a result of them playing. Whereby, with Kane, he was always there was always an element that is far more traditional. 
and it, I, I kind of leads to the sort of key question of would you would this development process ever happen again? Are we ever going to see another superstar? And let's say let's narrow it down to an English superstar, or a British superstar, being developed in that way. So would would now the sort of the with the modern inclination towards statistics with the models, with the analytics, with all of the technology that we now have, would that have meant that Kane would have been picked out earlier? You know, would the amateur online scouts, the people that you know, run websites about youth team football for Premier League clubs, would they have all seen it far more earlier? So would then, you know, the whole point with Kane is there was a conspicuous lack of hype, whereby the next Harry Kane would almost certainly there would be far more hype. There would be far more sense of this is the next big thing. You know, throughout his narrative, there's always this sense of him sort of paying his dues. You know, and that due to his lack of overt speed and his size and strength, he was almost sort of imagined as a target man. It's already a sort of a dying breed. You think of sort of famous target men of the recent era. You, know, you may be talking about, you know, Kareem Benzema, but, it, you know, even then, during that sort of period of time, that was when he was almost like the willing worker that sort of helped and did all of the sort of donkey work that allowed Bale and Ronaldo to then get all the glory. You know, you had Olivier Giroud, who was never fully appreciated or relied on by Arsenal, and even latterly at Chelsea. You know, Olivier Giroud at Chelsea is always the last option. In other words, after the, the summer signing hasn't worked out, after the kid from the youth system hasn't worked out, uh, we may, they might even play a midfielder up front for a little bit, and then suddenly it's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll go to you know, Giroud you know, off the bench, or we'll give him a few starts, and then he does well, but he's always going to be the first person that gets dropped. And you know, the fact that, that Chelsea have almost twice tried to sort of release and sell him and then they always come back to him when the time is necessary. Even at international level, he's scored fantastic amounts of goals. He's one of their top goal scorers of all time. But almost his success at international level is almost predicated as a, as a foil that allows Griezmann and Bappe and sort of Pogba to have success. In other words, if you play all of them without Olivier Giroud, it doesn't quite work. It's only when he does the sort of, the, again, the donkey work, the tracking back, the holding the ball up, the intelligent runs off the ball that allows the more talented players the sort of scope to succeed. In some ways, it is Kane is almost a failure of imagination. You know, it was almost as if each loan deal that he took on was an invitation to fail. You know, with Norwich, it was okay. You, they're in the Premier League. So okay, do it in the Premier League. Prove to us that you're not just a Championship striker. You know. At Leicester City, it was okay. You played on some teams that weren't necessarily the greatest teams, teams that were struggling to stay up. We'll put you at Leicester, where they're a team that's already successful. They're already desperately trying to get, you know, not, you know, they're all they're guaranteed, pretty much guaranteed to be in the playoffs. They're going for automatic promotion. See if you can break into that team. You know, with Millwall, it's the idea of you know they were in the championship, but the bottom end of the championship. They they have hard fans. It's a rough and ready style of play. You, you're not going to be overburdened with chances to score. It's not one of those championship loans where they're actually playing really nice football, like a Barnsley or they have a foreign manager and they're trying to you know, sort of play Premier League football in the championship. This is very much 
sort of grin bearer. You know they're struggling in the championship. They need instant results. If you don't, if you don't immediately start performing, you're just a lone player. They will happily just dunk you in the reserves. You know Millwall fans are demanding. You know it's the the Millwall way. They want full commitment, full effort. They can be hard on new players. Even if you go into Leighton Orient, they were in League One. They were upwardly mobile. They were already established in the division. So they didn't send him to a League 2 team. They didn't send him to a conference team. They sent him to the highest level they possibly could do. And in many ways what that's created is a narrative that is entirely based on struggle. And it shines a very brutal light on the realities of the academy process. Of how football players are really developed. You know, That shaped him in the way of his attitude and the way how he plays football. Whereby other sort of superstars at his talent level, their origin stories are far more Disney. You know, you have Wayne Rooney as a 16-year-old making his debut first game of the season against Spurs. Gives a couple of very experienced centre-halves an absolutely ragged time. A few weeks later, scores his first goal in the last minute against the Arsenal, one of the best teams in the league, and wins in the game. Fantastic. You know, Gerard, you know, being a Liverpool fan, growing up in you know the history of the place, going through the youth system, breaking into the team, breaking into the England team, becoming captain, leading to the Champions League. It all gets a bit Disney and it all gets the feeling that this was kind of inevitable. Where Harry Kane's is far more it's tough. You know, even when he succeeds, he's he's sort of deemed a one season wonder by fans. In many ways, this because this failure of imagination comes from the idea that with volume goal scorers, with franchise players, often they're the the missing piece. So you know Neymar with PSG, that's the one superstar that's going to take us from getting to the quarterfinals of the Champions League to the finals and to winning it. You know, um, Fernandez at you know Manchester United. I, he is an old-school Manchester United player that would have got into the team of the 90s and the 2000s. The formerly dominant United team wants to win, gets penalties, you know, scores great goals. When he plays Manchester United win, you know, Virgil van Dijk at Liverpool. We've just lost the Champions League final because we're not defensively strong. He will be, and Alisson will be the one because our goalkeeper made mistakes. Alisson will not make mistakes. You know, Aubameyang at Arsenal, and it's... There's the excitement, there's the transfer fee, there's the expectation, there's the, I guess, the allure of the unknown. There's something, you know, kind of exotic. Yeah, there's foreign. You haven't, you know, how will they work into the Premier League? And so, with Kane, there was always, I suppose, you were, the fans were always, you and the media were always working through these unconscious bias regarding his size, regarding his nationality. I mean, one of the things I remember when people were saying that he was a one-season wonder is that he was getting left-foot goals, right-foot goals, goals with his head. He was a penalty taker. He was scoring from outside of the box. You know, all of these elements, there was his passing, there was a few assists, there was his hold-up play. It was all eminently sustainable it would be different if he was just getting right foot tappings you can have a great run of form and then the kid you know especially with young players and they can drop off a level you know you, you remember people like you know Danny Cannamartri at Everton you know even Francis Jeffers to an extent they they have skill they go for a run they're the darling of, of football 
and then once they get into their mid twenties, you know, it's the the actual talent level isn't quite there, and then it's kind of a slow decline phase that sets in, and it can happen quite. You know, with Jeff as he moves to Arsenal, it just doesn't work out, and from then his career just, you know, he just becomes a solid sort of championship player. You know, even if you compare with sort of Marcus Edwards. You know, when Marcus Evers came through the Spurs youth system, he was a classic YouTube player. He was aesthetically pleasing. He was exciting. You could see it would jump off the screen just how good he was and what sort of potential that he had. And in, in a book about Spurs, Pochino sort of refers to him almost as, as if he could possibly be the new Messi. And yet... In the end, he's now you know, left Spurs. He's gone. He's doing pretty well for Vitura Guimaraes in Portugal, and yet Kane, who's only a, you know, a few years older, is at a much higher level, you know, performing at the absolute sort of heights of the game. Really, I mean, if you compare him with Kane, with let's say you take. Ian Wright, Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand, just for the start of the 10, is that you know, Ian Wright really comes from sort of park football, non-league, makes this huge jump up to being signed by Palace, does well at Palace and then joins Arsenal. You know, Alan Shearer is rejected as, as a you know, youth by Newcastle United. There's a famous story that they have a practice game for uh, some trialists and there's no goalkeeper. So Alan Shearer gets made to play in goal. So the one shot that Alan Shearer had of playing for Newcastle as a youth, he was in goal. And you think, well, of course he wasn't then. You know, he's an outfielder. He's never played in goal in his life in any major level. And that was why he was rejected by Newcastle. He has to go to Southampton, breaks through at Southampton. Then goes to Blackburn for a big money signing. And then finally gets to go back to Newcastle you know, later in his career. You know, Les Ferdinand, you know, goes through, you know, plays at you know, non-league level, I think, for Yedding, I think for Hayes as well. And, you know, gets signed by QPR. Leaves, spends a year playing out in Turkey, then gets re-signed by QPR. Goes to Newcastle, then goes to Spurs and kind of get breaks into the England team. And so, in the sense that, Harry Kane has, I guess, missed that narrative step. He There isn't a situation where he played, let's say, for Millwall for a few years. You know, like Teddy Sheng, who then went to Nottingham Forest, who then went to Spurs. He missed that step out. In other words, whereby previously it would always been... And that's sort of shaped some of the, I guess, perceptions of Kane. You know, the idea with these sort of signings is, is that... The big team is the final step to proving that they belong. And the trophies become the sort of just reward underpinning the, the morality of the process and of the system. You know, there's a sense of almost the element of trickle-down economics, you know, that economic theory. The idea is, is that you know, the money that Palace sent to the, you know, the non-league team and for whichever park team Ian Wright was playing for helped keep park football going. And the money that Arsenal gave to Crystal Palace kept Crystal Palace going. 
So, you know, the point was Palace were unable to stay in the top division. Their opportunity to win a major tr- trophy was the 90 Cup final against Manchester United. Southampton were unable to push up the league with Alan Shearer. Blackburn were. You know, QPR went down, you know, at, at, at the year after selling Ferdinand for £6 million to Newcastle. You know, it's these sort of clubs with the traditionally smaller clubs of limited ambition in the new sort of Premier League era. And the sense that, you know, with you had sort of Ian Wright's the pride of park football, despite the fact that actually, if you look at from where the sort of late eighties, nineties when these sort of transfers were happening and where park football is now. It's a declining ecosystem. It seems very unlikely that with the academy system the way it is, that you will ever really get any kind of major Premier League football player having played any form of park football whatsoever. And park football is declining as a public health health and community benefit is declining and COVID hasn't helped that. It's probably exacerbated some of the problems and the lack of funding and infrastructure. The idea that there was a trickle-down doesn't seem to be happening. The park pitches aren't good and they're rapidly diminishing. They're being turned into houses, offices, car parks. I suppose one of the elements of this missing narrative step in in Kane's career and, and the perceptions is that it's fomented and created a sense of jealousy. It's almost a sense it's it's almost too good to be true. You know, it's not just the local boy done good, but it's the local boy done good that benefits the national team. He's a leader for the, the his club, he's a leader for his country. He keeps getting better. He isn't just a goal, out-and-out goal scorer. He is now a 9 that can play as a 10 that on occasions will play a little bit like an 8 if absolutely necessary. And when you've got a corner, he'll be a 6. And the idea that you can that Spurs have literally found a foundational attacking player effectively down the back of the sofa. You know, and if you compare it with let's say West Ham struggles to, you know, find a strike and how much money they have spent in the in the time period from when Spurs, you know, when he Kane makes his breakthrough in the first team to now, West Ham has spent probably somewhere in the vicinity of a hundred million pounds on strikers and it hasn't and none of them have ever put up the numbers that Kane has done. You know, you can sort of in a way compare it and contrast with sort of Vardy not moving to Arsenal. Is that you get the sense that Firstly, Vardy was less effective at international level. You know, you, you know you, we think of Euro 2016 where he made his most appearances for England and no one wants to remember that. No one wants to remember Iceland. No one wants to remember Uncle Roy's era. You know, there was less upside to him. He was slightly older. And the Leicester system was really able to utilise Vardy in a way that a top six team might not be able to. And because Vardy had won the title... I suppose it underlined the exceptionalism of the story and it also simultaneously negated the ple- the pressure of him having to leave to win something. You know, he'd already won something, you know, maybe one day there'll be the sort of Vardy the movie that will, you know, tell that story. And really what this leads to is the question of I suppose Potentially 
philosophy and maybe morality and kind of a mixture of both in the sense that these the strikers that I've compared Harry Kane to in terms of their career progressions, this is the beginning of the Premier League. This is where you first get the first few seeds of stratification. You get Blackburn spending a huge amount of money with, you know, under owner Jack Walker to try and win the title. So they signed, you know, South Blackburn signed Tim Flowers, who was number two to David Seaman for a few years in the mid 90s from Southampton for big money. They signed Alan Shearer for big money. They signed Tim Sherwood from Norwich. They signed Chris Sutton from Norwich. They sort of cherry pick some of the best young talent in the country. And there's this, so 2.6 million was the, I think in 93 was when Shearer gets signed by Blackburn. That's kind of a record transfer at the time. And I suppose there's this question of, would Blackburn have won the title without Alan Shearer? Now, Alan Shearer had a fantastic year. You know, this was pre his major knee injury that he happened, in, I think, in 97. He was a full, complete player. He had a bit of pace about him. You know, probably not quite as well-rounded in terms of the assist game. But, you know, him and... Chris Sutton in a 42 game league season had, you know, odd to what Kane and Son have broken it, had the record for the most combinations of goals and assists from one player to another. It was 14, I believe. But the sense was is that there were so many British strikers available who were putting up numbers. You had you know, Fowler at Liverpool, you had Stan Collymore you know, with Nottingham Forest, you had Les Ferdinand at QPR, you had Andy Cole at Newcastle. Eventually, they would have signed somebody. They would have found one striker somewhere and would have put up similar numbers. Because that was an era of great strikers who was putting you know, massive amounts of goals away. And that's what it almost sort of comes down to, is the, the sort of trophies as a, as a fig leaf. The, the sort of the totty effect. You know, we, we I've talked about the... You know, when Blackburn won the title and you know against you know a dominant Manchester United team, a couple of years after that, Blackburn was struggling. They weren't going to ever match. They weren't ever able to get back into the title race and compete against Ferguson. And so, really, Alan Shearer has this choice. He can basically go to Newcastle, his hometown team, who, as we discussed, rejected him quite painfully, or he can go to Manchester United now. The obvious point would be that had Alan Shearer gone to Manchester United, he would have won more trophies. And you know, he would have probably been more successful at a domestic level. He'd have ended his career with more than one Premier League trophy. He'd have won the FA Cup, he'd have probably won the League Cup, and he might well have won the Champions League. And I guess why this isn't this you know, this decision isn't a more bigger what if is that this Premier League title that he wins in 94-95 gives the decision a sort of a veneer of authenticity. It's a Premier League title winner making an ambitious step up to a team that's competing with Manchester United. And that Newcastle team had taken Manchester United quite close under Keegan a couple of times. Rather than being this kind of overtly sentimental, even slightly mawkish decision. 
the, the perception that it was an emotional, counterintuitive decision, almost a form of selfishness. The idea that instead of winning trophies and seeing that where his career can go to its top levels, it's, I'll go to Newcastle, I want the adulation. Which I guess it isn't really fair. But it's the idea of this concept of maximising your career and going against the expected grain. And at the time, you know, it wasn't as if Newcastle, they did drop off and they weren't able with Shearer to ever really compete against United until the early 2000s, at which point Shearer was in the sort of decline phase of his career under Sir Bobby Robson. I guess with these sort of question marks, it... It opens up questions about the footballing political settlement. Is it just or fair? So the point was is that you had all of these strikers that you know at QPR at Palace who weren't going to go anywhere and moving up the system seemed to to work because you go to Arsenal. Even if Arsenal weren't competing for titles at the time, they had the potential to, and they did. Ian Wright wins the double. And Arsenal in place for England, there's benefits. There's the element of the sort of sticking carrot. If you're at a top club, you're more likely to get England caps. You're more likely to win things. And this is where the problem is that you get the sort of dichotomy of Harry Kane. He is the most successful, unsuccessful player in the modern era. He's never finished outside of the top seven. And he's never not qualified for Europe. He's been an FA Cup semi-finalist. He's now going to be, as of this month, a twice-finalist of the League Cup. He's been in a Champions League final. He's finished second, third, fourth in the league. He's repeatedly played in the Champions League. He's you know, played in the Europa League. You know, he's been gold boot winner at a World Cup for England. He's been to World Cup semi-final. He's been to a Euro Nations semi-final. You know, he's captain of England. You know, there is no sense that Tottenham are able to compete. What they are not able to compete with is the top level of stratification. In other words, if Harry Kane leaves Spurs, realistically, there is only a handful of clubs that can afford him. And you're talking about United, City, Chelsea, and Bayern Munich, Real... Barca, Bayern, maybe Juventus. And some of those teams, you know, especially Real and Barca, don't seem to have a huge amount of money at the moment. So there's no guarantee. Nor Juventus. All clubs at the moment have a massive gap from COVID and some structural problems. So, you know, realistically, I don't see Harry Kane going to Chelsea. You know, Manchester United would potentially be possibly a sideways move it wouldn't be that much more of a step up United and Spurs have been competing for similar things for an extended period of time realistically but the thing is if he joins any one of those clubs he's guaranteed to win something the point you know and so this is where the the, the question of sort of morality gets brought into it is that those clubs will keep keep on winning because they are so much bigger than everyone else. Tottenham is a top 10 side in terms of size in world football. And if you're having to move to them, to move up this chain because you cannot win anything, that is a problem of the system. And so what you're saying by you know, saying, well, if he stays at Spurs, he won't win anything. And that somehow that will then 
dent his legacy. Well, take Totti, take Steven Gerrard. So if you take Totti, for example, Totti won one Scudetto for Roma, spent his whole career there. And yet, you take that sort of 2000, I think it was either 2001, 2002 Roma team, what they did was they spent 32 million on a over 30 Gabriel Batistuta. They'd signed several other high-priced players. And really, it was a... Lazio had won the league the year before, and they desperately wanted to win the league, because you you can't live in a world where Lazio have won something and Roma haven't. And so, in many ways, the question is, is that what does that 2000 Roma league title in Wintim have in relation to the remainder of Totti's Roma career? And it's... No, it's a short-term outlier. It was because Lazio won because they had some money, they thrown it at it. In some respects, it, it's sort of meaningless, because would they have won the title without spending all that money on Gabriel Batistuta? No. Much in the same way that, you know, would Blackburn have maybe not won the league title in 94-95, but would have competed with United had they not signed Alan Shearer and spent that money on some other great English striker that was floating around during that period. Yes. In the same way that if, you know, Man City have won multiple league titles with Sergio Aguero, and if Kane was the the like-for-like replacement for Sergio Aguero, they'd still carry on winning league titles. He'd put up numbers. You know, it's a bit, a bit like, you know, sort of the Berbatov situation when he left Spurs. He was the centre point of that football team and linked up brilliantly well with Robbie Keane. And at United, it was never quite the same again. He was really there just to volume goal score. And you know, he did some skillful things, but he, he never quite ever was as important to the first team as he was at Spurs. He was never able to quite influence the way how Manchester United were playing because you were surrounded by Rooney, because you had Tevez, because you have all of this other fantastic talent. It sort of diluted, you know... What made Berbatov fantastic? At Spurs, he was able to push himself to the absolute limit of what his talent was. And in the same way that he was never quite able to do that at United. It's like if you talk about Gerrard at Liverpool turning down Chelsea. Again, the point was Chelsea carried on winning. You know, Stephen Gerrard was not the last piece in the jigsaw puzzle. You know, they would have won because they would have spent that money somewhere else and got somebody else to do the job. In other words, Harry Kane is not the number one striking option on the transfer market. It's Erling Haaland, because he's younger and will probably be slightly cheaper. And so there's more upside in it. Or you can decide to go and sign Messi because of the record, because it's a free transfer. You know, Harry Kane is kind of a... Well, he's had some you know injuries... He's slightly older and that much harder to get away from Spurs because of his contractual situation and because of how difficult it's going to be dealing with you know, sort of Daniel Levy. But again, the point is with Gerard, the same as Totti, their legacies are not centred on winning an individual trophy. You know, the 2005 you know, European Cup was a cup run. It was a magical cup run and winning the UEFA Cup, winning the League Cup, winning the FA Cup. And that the Gerard final where he spanks it in on one leg against West Ham. They were all fantastic. But Gerard, what he wanted more than anything else and what the fans wanted in terms of you know, legacy was to win the league title. And he failed. But that doesn't change how much he's loved or he how much he is respected 
by his own fanboys, by how much Newcastle fans love Alan Shearer. Nobody sits there and says, uh, Alan Shearer won less league titles than Dimitar Berbatov, won less league titles than Sylvain Wiltord, you know, or won the same amount. The point is, is that he is still up there as a Newcastle legend and up there as the Premier League top scorer. You know, Gerald is one of the best midfielders that you know, will ever grace the Premier League. And so this is what I'm going... I'm going to call this, you know, sort of Harry Kane's animal farm. Because in many ways this desire to focus on trophies, to focus on Ballon d'Ors, is really what we're trying... what fans are trying to do, what the media is trying to do, is to say that this current football political settlement is correct. The point is the difference between, you know, leaving Palace, leaving Southampton, leaving QPR, is that those clubs really were small. They really didn't have the ability to compete at the top level. But if you're leaving Spurs, or if, you know, in Lewandowski, if you're leaving Dortmund because you can't win there, or you can't win on any regular basis, there is something wrong with the system. And what you're trying to do is you are trying to posit Harry Kane as this sort of boxer figure. You know, the, the figure of boxer in George Orwell's Animal Farm, which is a allegory about the the failings of, of you know, communism, and sp- you know, specifically, you know, Russian communism, Soviet communism, is the idea that Boxer is this huge horse that does all the, the, the hard work yeah, without complaint and just keeps on going and keeps on believing in the dream and that as a result he's naive and that he's you know missing all the, the problems that Napoleon, the leader of the animals who've overtaken the, the farm and killed the humans and taken control and then they just become just like the humans. And we, what we're doing by trying to push Harry Kane out of the door is trying to say that stratification, the current football political settlement, is morally acceptable. And the idea that trophies is the most valuable currency, the idea that the Ballon d'Or, competing for the Ballon d'Or, is the most important thing in a footballer's career. And that's the right moral thing to do. And it's not. And it hasn't always been. I think if Harry Kane stays at... Tottenham and breaks Jimmy Greaves' record and is a top goal scorer of all time and breaks Wayne Rooney's record at England and becomes a top goal scorer of all time. He will be one of the greatest strikers in history. One of the greatest England strikers of all, all time. And spending three years at Man City and winning a bunch of titles that they would have won anyway isn't going to have made him a better player. And realistically, if you're living in a world in which only a handful of teams, so Juventus, Bayern Munich, Real, Barca, uh, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, are winning everything, PSG, every single year, it diminishes the individual's role in it. You're just joining a super team who will carry on winning everything. And I think to that to say is the sort of be-all and end-all of football isn't. You know, if you look at how much Alan Shearer is loved, if you look at however much Gerrard is loved, in comparison with Nicky Butt, and Nicky Butt won a crap load more than Steven Gerrard. But no one would make that argument. 
No, you know, there is something more. Your legacy doesn't have to be just pots and pans. It has something deeper to it. If you spend your whole career at Spurs and win two trophies, those two trophies will mean a lot more because you've earned them. You have you know, triumphed if you beat Man City in, in the Carabao Cup final. If you qualify for the Champions League, that will have something more than if you win you know, the Champions League at Real Madrid where you're expected to. You're always going to be there or thereabouts. And I think the moral of Harry Kane's career so far has really been that old school ideas and thought processes you know they may look out of style compared to the modern game but that's what's made harry kane harry kane's career is one of anachronism and i i think it would be better for his career if he maintained that but at the same time i would have no complaints if he wants to go and win trophies you know, he wouldn't be the first he wouldn't be the last and he should have full control over his own career but I think the wider point, really, that football fans and the media should be asking themselves is, do we think that the current football political settlement in this country, with the top four, with the top six, do we think that that is, that is morally acceptable? Do we see the way how football is trending, its directions with the you know, reform to the Champions League, do we think that that is the correct way for football to develop what do you honestly think would be the best thing for English football for Harry Kane to stay at Spurs and keep fighting the good fight or for him to move to the top two the top three thank you for listening <laughs>